Um, and then I think, you know, you can lean into the evidence and say, look, a lot of the stuff that we did in the last 10 years to try and reduce the number of people who were incarcerated at the same time, we had tremendous success reducing the crime rate. Crime rates were lowest uh, in the 20 teens, far lower than they'd been at any point since the early 1960s. And this was a point when we were holding fewer people in jail, fewer people in prison. We were making fewer arrests. We were shortening sentences. So there's a lot of empirical data to suggest that, you know, we can find other ways to reduce crime and violence and have healthier cities and to look at each other in a more humane way um, that do not involve, you know, cracking down on crime. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. We're back at it to deliver another insightful conversation about a topic that is affecting our country and affecting our community. Today's topic is about crime and more specifically talking about the rise that we've experienced since 2020. And here to discuss this issue, we have Dr. John K. Roman. Dr. John is a senior fellow in the Economics, Justice, and Society Group at NORC at the University of Chicago. John's research focuses on evaluations of innovative crime control policies and justice programs. His research focuses on the economics of crime and juvenile and adult justice systems, focusing on prison reentry, diversion, and alternative sentencing. John also investigates justice system interactions with substance abuse adolescent development, workforce development, and education. John's work also includes studies on cost-benefit methodology and public-private partnerships. So listeners, as always, another fantastic guest. And John, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And listeners, just so you know, our first segment is talking about the rise in crime. So that's where we wanted to kind of start, John, because I was doing a little bit of research on what's going on in the rise in crime. And it seems, you know, kind of like some alarming rates, but a lot of it was in murder trends. Like, for instance, Chicago saw 797 homicides in 2021. ABC reported that. And that was about 25 more than in 2020. A lot of other major cities like Philadelphia, L.A., you know, D.C., Baltimore, the list goes on and on where they're experiencing a lot more murder. So I just wanted to make sure that as we talk about this rise in crime, John, is the rise that we're seeing in crime mostly with murders or are there other areas of crime that we're also seeing rise at alarming rates? Yeah, I mean, we could talk more about it as we get into the pandemic and the effect on people's people's, you know, daily lives and the effect that that had on crime. But but the big headline you have exactly right. So in 2020, uh, there was about a 30 percent rise in homicides in the United States. And that was the largest year over year increase that we've seen since we started keeping national statistics in 1960. And then that that went up a little bit again in 2021. But this is really about shootings. These are these are victims of gun homicides. And that's really uh, where the, the violence spike is. The rest of crime, not entirely, but for the most part, crime declined in 2020 and 2021. Wow, that's interesting. You know, it, it it makes me think back to some of the other conversations where we've had about how the media kind of inflates or maybe influences some of the things. And in reality, I did some other research and saw that um, crime isn't as high as it, you know, say was 20, 30 years ago. D do you feel that, you know, we in the media or maybe even social media, because it's, it's, you know, the ability to see crime is, is so easy now because everyone's videotaping it. Is that making this, this rise of crime seem worse? Well, the media always inflates crime. This is, this is nothing new, right? So the Gallup poll asks a question every year and they've been asking it for decades. And they ask, they ask two questions. They say, do you feel more safe or less safe in your, in your neighborhood? And do you feel more safe or less safe in your city? And in most years, people will say they feel a little more safe in their in their neighborhood than they used to. And but the city is, you know, the city is terrible and it's much worse. And it kind of doesn't matter what's happening with violence and with crime in the United States. Most years since 1990, violence has been down. And most years, people's reporting of violence in their city is up. 
right? And so, but part of it is that, and part of it is the media sensationalism, and if it bleeds, it leads, and that whole narrative. But, but in the media's defense, I will say we don't have good language for what we saw in 2020 and 2021. We don't really have a violent spike. I say this all the time. I, I inadvertently will say a crime spike, and it isn't one. Um, so this is a new situation. We haven't seen something like this before, and we're still trying to get comfortable with the language. I think you could definitely see, you know, a lot of people in the media trying to grapple with how to frame this properly. When you're talking about it being a crime spike, really when it's a homicide spike, but many people don't make that distinction. And so it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And like you you mentioned it before, crime did actually drop in 2020. You would, most people, if you ask them on the street would probably say there's no way possible based on what I read on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. But I wanted to ask, too, a lot of people have pointed to, you know, the protests as being the reason why we've seen this spike in crime. And the fact that you saw this sort of, I think they may have called it a blue wave where officers sort of disengaged because of the criticism that came after the protest. And so I I saw that you you wrote an article last year, I think in September, kind of detailing out why you, theory by theory, why you thought each one just is not you know, didn't really explain this particular spike, which is so unique to 2020. So just maybe kind of go over why, in your opinion, these theories about the George Floyd protest and uh, even COVID-19 protocols being reasons why we saw this spike in homicide, police aren't on the street. Why do you think those theories don't really accurately explain this particular spike that we saw in 2020? Right. So, so it's, it's a fair question. It's, I think it's confusing for people because the media has, has tried to find the salacious story rather than the sort of simpler story. And I think in this case, the simpler story holds, uh, holds true. So beginning in March, so January and February of 2020 were sort of normal in terms of gun victimization, gun homicide and overall homicide levels. In March, we began to see the, the lockdowns, businesses shut down, transit shut down, schools shut down, everything shut down. And in, you know, four, six weeks, you start to see this, this rapid increase in the number of homicides. And it goes up throughout the summer and stays high through the end of 2021. Um, what happened during this period was that people's, in criminal, criminologist terms, we would say their routine activities changed, right? So what people did during the day, they weren't getting up, they weren't going to work, they weren't going to school. For young people in particular, this is really important, right? The main predictor of violence, whether it's in the U.S. or anywhere in the world, is a dense cluster of young men with, with nothing to do. Um, and so what you get here is people got disconnected from the positive influences in their life, work, school, church, community, and other supports like what you get from the government. If you've lived in a place where you've had traumatic incidents and you're seeing a counselor to help you. That all went away. All of that went away. And so people are stuck at home and particularly in neighborhoods that have a history of high violence. People are stuck in places where they have accumulated trauma from past incidents. They have disputes with people who were responsible for that prior violence. And they know those people are home, too. And they're right there. They're right down the street. And it's a toxic stew. There's a little more to it. I talk about that later. Let me just say really quickly why I don't think. The, um, the protests explain the homicide spike and why I don't think a change in policing behavior changed the homicide spike. So George Floyd, the murder is May 25th. There is a period of intense unrest in many cities over the next week or two. In most cities, that was it. That was the peak. And then it petered out. There were, there continued to be peaceful protests, marches, what have you. But the sort of period where there was conflict was very short lived and much more intense in a few cities. And that just doesn't line up with the data that shows a spike starting in May and lasting for 18 months. For the police, you know, it, it's this idea that somehow they disconnected because police were upset with the way the community perceived them after the protest and thought it was unfair to blame all the cops, and thus they changed their behavior. The, the, the short version is that the data just don't support this. When you look, there's a recent study that just came out that looked at the effect of COVID on violence around drug markets in Philadelphia. It's really interesting we could talk about. But when they look at the drug arrest patterns, they stay the same. So police were policing in these high violence neighborhoods. Nothing changed. That seems to be the story around the country. The only thing that has a national uh, consistent story that's true every place 
city, suburbs, rural areas, Republican cities, Democratic cities. The only story that holds up for all of those places is that COVID-19 changed people's routine activities. I think that, you know, that part gets lost. Obviously, it's very hard to have these, you know, that kind of conversation in a two minute segment on, you know, on the news. So I, you know, I understand the media is doing the best that they can. But I think sometimes there there are moments necessary where you need to go further and explain like, okay, while we may believe the protests and, uh, you know, COVID protocols is why we saw the spike. This is the real reason why, because we, we get away from these divisive arguments of, well, it's just the democratically controlled cities is where anarchy is just, you know, taking place and things like that. When in reality, it doesn't matter. It was it was country, it was nationwide, citywide, suburbs, rural. And so I did want to ask, too, because a lot of this is just to make sure we hit all the possible theories to defund the police movement was huge last year. We've gotten through 2021 and, and the results are that most cities did not actually follow through with defunding their police. So just from your perspective, is there any weight, you know, to the defund the police movement being the reason why we saw this spike in 2020 or 2021? Yeah, I, I think I mean, the main reason why I don't believe that the defund the police movement uh, changed the or explains the, the spike in violent crime is because th- there wasn't any defunding. Um, there's there's a, a ton of research that's been done on this, and you see these great sort of scatter plots where they show how many cities are above above the zero line, right, where zero is no change, and above the line is some increase in budget, and it's almost every one of the hundred biggest cities in the United States. And when you find a city that's below the line, like Philadelphia is below that line, they had a cut in the police budget of like fifteen million dollars out of a something like, don't hold me to it, but like a $700 million budget. And then you say, well, that's not not enough to explain anything anyway. Philadelphia had a horrible year with respect to homicide. And then you find out that that $15 million was actually money that was dedicated to the parking authority that simply got moved out of the policing budget into another budget and kept at the same level. So there's a little bit of budget gimmickry there to try and convince people who were pro-defund the police that they'd actually done mm. something without actually doing anything. And the whole story amounts to a bunch of nothing, and it doesn't explain the spike in violence. <laughs> That's funny, John. I'm glad you you're you're very insightful. I'm glad that you you know you you keeping our listeners in the loop about all these different things. And Devin, I'm glad that you're bringing it up because there there there's a lot of hearsay and misinformation about there, uh, and I think that which I, I don't know your political you know, narrative as far as Democrat or Republicans, but I think a lot of Republicans said that, you know, this defund police is going to lead to more crime and it's going to really negatively impact our cities and our country. And I'm glad to see that the world of academia is working to kind of show that that's, you know, a fraudulent claim. So what we're going to do listeners, we're going to wrap up our first segment here and we're going to take uh, a break. And when we get back, we're going to get into our second segment, which really dives into what leads in the crime. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. John K. Roman. He's a senior fellow in economics, justice, and society group at NORC at the University of Chicago. And like we were saying before the break, listeners, our second segment is around what leads to crime. And, and John, when I think about you know some of these big cities, I've lived in Memphis, I've lived in Los Angeles, and I've lived in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and all of them have you know some bad raps for <laughs> been dangerous. You know, we even reported on Memphis in our this season about how you know some famous rappers have been killed there, and you know whenever I think back to all three cities that I lived in. That there are a lot of you know missing pieces there. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of 
you know, people who just almost don't have opportunity and kind of lost the will to even want to aspire to be something, you know, there's just a lot of that. So whenever we talk about crime, I know that there's got to be some sort of academic argument for how environment and opportunity, you know, drives individuals toward crime. So how, how do we phrase that narrative just to give some context to the story? Yeah. So, I mean, academics tend to talk about, I mean, we can talk about social, social ecology of places, but what we're really talking, which is just the way that the environment influences the people who live there. Right. And it, and it goes to the question of do people poison places or do places poison people? That's really the question that we want the answer to. And I think the academic literature is overwhelming that places poison people, that places with cumulative disadvantage, right? The schools aren't good. There's a spatial mismatch between where the jobs are and where you live. Um, there's no history of wealth accumulation. People are living paycheck to paycheck. There's uh, removal of large numbers of young men of color from those neighborhoods into the prison system and who aren't available to get married and to hold jobs and to be a part of it. That all these things are cumulative. Um, and that's where crime clusters. So if you were to look and a lot of this is structural and a lot of this goes back to the FHA policies around redlining about who could get a mortgage and build wealth and who couldn't and where you couldn't get a mortgage in the 50s and 60s because the Fair Housing Administration said you couldn't loan to people who had a property, who wanted to buy a property in those places. Wealth didn't accumulate. People with means left. The disadvantage accumulated. William Julius Wilson will talk about how manufacturing fled those places. Um, and the people who are left behind are the people who are, the, who are most likely to be the victims of crime. It's really important when you're trying to understand the relationship between people and places and crime and victimization to understand that it really is only a few places in a city, even those cities you talked about, right? So LA is a, a relatively wealthy city. Memphis is a city that has problems. Baltimore is, is just chronically um, the, among the most violent cities in America. And Memphis sort of comes in and out of that. And what you have there are places where, you know, even in those cities, most of the city streets are pretty safe, right? Half of the city streets have uh, no reported crime in a given year. Most of the rest have only one or two, and then a very few uh, small number of streets and street segments have almost all the violence. And it's in the same places, and it's year after year, decade after decade, and now generation after generation. And you can look at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm on a Philadelphia focus today, but it, the, the local newspaper, The Daily in Philadelphia, The Inquirer did, um, did a series of graphics where they showed where the red lines were in Philadelphia, where you couldn't invest and showed where the violence hotspots are in 2021. And they overlap almost perfectly. So this is a story that we created, that we have perpetuated, and we haven't ever made the, the investment to, to fix the accumulated problems that exist in these places. You know, I'm glad you said that, John, because it, it just shows how racism, discrimination and prejudice kind of play into crime rates because, um, you know, we, we, we've talked about it since, you know, season one of our podcast that, uh, that our history and how America's institutions have been set up and how they've acted amongst minority people, particularly people of color, um, it's it's made it's plagued us to where we are the ones who are uh, you know having to deal with the blunt of these situations, whether it be in healthcare, whether it being housing, and like we're talking about today with crime. So I'm glad that you kind of painted that you know that historical you know context and leading up to what it is now. Uh, it's always you know it seems like we always are talking about you know elements of you know critical race theory to a certain degree and how institutions can have negative consequences so uh thank you for you know for bringing that up yeah i, I mean it's when you think about this you know critical race theory is obviously a hot button issue and it's being used to political advantage in all sorts of ways but this really you know on one hand very few students are taught the principles of critical race theory as a discipline on the other hand, the elements of it, the idea that there is systematic racism, that there's structural racism, that, that there's racism that is built into these systems is, is so true that it, it permeates the study of a lot of, a lot of different things. Public health, education, 
and of course criminology. Um, and and um, if you were to look, so Radley Balco is a reporter for the Washington Post, and he's done this amazing series. And you can find it on the Washington Post website, where he um, he accumulated all of the studies that were done at each stage of the criminal justice system processing to show whether there were racial disparities at each of those steps. And so he looks at who stopped on the street, whose car is stopped and searched, who searched on the street, who stopped question and frisk, who's arrested, who has force used against them, who is, who is released after having been arrested and who is held on bail, how high the bail is, are they likely to be convicted? If they're convicted, how long the sentence is? If they're sentenced and released, what is the likelihood that they're found to violate the, the terms of their community supervision or are sent back to prison? And at every single one of those steps, there's a racial disparity, right? And we have to be careful and say, well, that's a racial disparity. That's not racist. We don't know. Was there racial animus behind that? We don't know what's called a disparity. But come on. It's every single step in the process. So it's it's not really a theory. It's an empirical truth, um, at least within the, the criminal justice system. That's one of the frustrations we have, particularly in the Black community, community, when we try to talk to people outside the community and explain that the things that we're talking about, the systemic racism we talk about, particularly in the criminal justice system, it's not as if we're making this up. This is not some fantasy world we want to live in where we believe everything is just rigged against us. Like you just said, if you look at every single step, particularly in the criminal justice system, you will find disparities. Now, how they got there, we may not have clear evidence, but obviously they exist. And so we don't want to, I feel like we just dance around the problem rather than just acknowledging the fact that there is a disparity. We don't have to lay blame, but we could at least try to, to find a solution, you know, to some of these things that have been chronically plaguing us for decades. And so, um, and one other thing I wanted to to ask you about too, is hearing you talk about how crime clusters in certain areas in the city. And you talk, you mentioned it earlier about, you know, crime tends to also cluster around uh, young men who are not really attached to their community, school, church, you know, some, t- some sort of job. Um, they're just sort of just existing without much opportunity. And to me, that drives home the point that when we have these debates about crime and crime numbers, we cannot just simply refer to the numbers and say, well, Black people commit, X percentage of crimes in the country. That means they must be doing something wrong or they're just inherently criminal. But that's, and that's not how we should frame this, the conversation because there's more to it behind just picking up a homicide number or a percentage. Yeah, no, I, and it's, you know, it's not a productive conversation in any sense, right? Because, you know, so just one last thing on the disparities because it's mm-hmm. important that you bring up, right? And, and And I think you even did it a little bit too, which is to say, we substitute in our minds the likelihood that, that a person of color, that a young black man in particular is arrested for whether they committed a crime or not. And the truth is a young black man and a young white man doing the same thing, the young white man is much less likely to be arrested for the same thing. Um, but it's, it's not a productive conversation because if you look at what the United Kingdom does, what England does, they talk about neat kids, and I love this. I think it's really great. N-E-E-T, kids were not employed in education or training, and they deliver all kinds of services to this population because they understand that they're at high risk of all kinds of negative life course outcomes. And in the United States, we sort of write those, those young people off, and, and that's, that's really where we miss the biggest opportunity. I was just going to ask really quickly, what is it about being attached to your community, having a job, you know, being, you know, being active within a church, community service? What is it about those things that tends to deter people from committing crime? Like, obviously, wealthy people do it, but just not at the same rate or in different ways. So what is it in particular about being connected to the community? I mean, it's any number of things, right? If you look at, um, there's programs for uh, first-time gun offenders, right? People arrested uh, for for a gun violation in Chicago. It's the first time they've been arrested. And there are programs, and these are 18 to 21-year-olds, and the programs, um, one of the programs will just pay the young men to go and get a job. And one of the goals there is just to get them out of the the neighborhood for, for the better part of the day. 
right? Just the opportunity not to be in that place where there's all that sort of accumulative disputes and trauma. Um, there's the connection to things beyond yourself. There's the, there's the supports that you get from all those places. You know, you go to work, you get some support. You go to church, you get some support. You have an education, they have some support services that you're just linked to, to other people who can, um, who can help you when you have difficulties in ways you just can't do when you're on your own and on the street and among your peers, because let's face it, you know, young men in particular are not, don't tend to be the most positive uh, peer support groups. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. I, I remember being in Memphis. Uh, I, I mentored a, a group of like five uh, teenagers. And, you know, as I was talking to them, you know, n- nothing really got over to them because they were just saying that, you know, we're just trying to make it, we're just trying to live. So it's just like, you know, we can't, you know, if we can't address these problems until we start to take care of the opportunities and the missed moments that uh, a lot of these communities are having, because that's, I think that that's what a lot of it comes down to that um, people don't have opportunity um, because, you know, some people find that a life of crime is easier or they're able to get the things that they want. And then there's also the mental health issue that we also have to address as well. Uh, I definitely think there's a lot of different things that we need to make sure to cover. And that's why we have a third segment so that we can make sure to address some of these things to see what we need to do to tackle crime. So listeners, we're going to give you another break. Make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Dr. John Roman. He's the co-editor of Cost-Benefit Analysis and Crime Control, along with Juvenile Drug Courts and Teen Substance Abuse. And so, Dr. Roman, we've talked a lot about kind of the reasoning behind crime, how it clusters in areas where there are a lot of young men who are not attached to their communities. But this is not, despite all the evidence, we've got plenty of research and evidence and data to show why these things happen. Despite that, a lot of people in America, like we discussed earlier, believe the country is more violent and that there is a need to once again crack down on crime. And so we're seeing people in some cities fall back into this old way of doing things where we need to be tough on crime. We need longer sentences. And I wanted to mention, too, we reported it here on the show. There was even uh, a a deputy mayor in Arkansas who was calling the the community-based approach to trying to combat crime, he called it the hug-a-thug approach. Mm. And I think it's more symbolic of an attitude that a lot of people tend to have around the country, particularly those in the white community who may be in more affluent areas who may view crime as really you choosing a DA or a judge to protect you from the Black people on the other side of the city. That's how crime is really viewed in this country. So I guess my question after all that is how do we get Americans and politicians and prosecutors and DAs to not fall back into the same old, you know, routine of cracking down on crime with longer sentences and try to look at some other ways of bringing down crime in maybe a more long-term fashion? Yeah. I mean, if there was a simple answer, we would, we'd be doing it um, because people, people are afraid and they, they, they do exactly what you're saying. They're electing a judge who's going to protect them, who they think speaks for their interests. Um, I think, you know, we have to, we have to sort of, we have to help people. We have to educate them in a, in a number of different ways. We have to help them to understand that the health of a city is the health of the, of the area. I mean, cities are the drivers for metropolitan areas in terms of the economics uh, success of the whole place. So healthy cities benefit everybody that there are huge costs uh, to to there are huge costs to over policing in terms of, I mean, all kinds of things. Right. There's huge costs. There's direct costs in terms of payments to people who were victimized by the police. There's the cost of um, the, the fact that police aren't a very efficient business and you're spending a lot of money to get a relatively tiny reduction in violence. The cost of mass incarceration. I think we as a society have begun to reject 
as being too expensive and counterproductive. So there's a bunch of economic arguments that you can make. But I think a better argument is, is, is just to, you know, there's the humanity argument, which is to say, look, I think we've learned a lot, especially since George Floyd, about the experiences, particularly of African-American men at the hands of police, that I think was news to a lot of suburban America. Um, and I think that began to change attitudes and began to help seeing people as people instead of us and them. Um, and then I think, you know, you can lean into the evidence and say, look, a lot of the stuff that we did in the last 10 years to try and reduce the number of people who were incarcerated at the same time, we had tremendous success reducing the crime rate. Crime rates were lowest uh, in the 20 teens, far lower than they've been at any point since the early 1960s. And this was a point when we were holding fewer people in jail, fewer people in prison. We were making fewer arrests. We were shortening sentences. So there's a lot of empirical data to suggest that, you know, we can find other ways to reduce crime and violence and have healthier cities and to look at each other in a more humane way um, that do not involve, you know, cracking down on crime. You know, John, it's amazing that we have so much, you know, research within our history and so much evidence that, you know, could, could lead us to the right pathway, but we choose to kind of ignore that. Um, and, you know, Whenever I think about some of these proposals and policies that have been pushed out there to kind of address crime, you know, there's been a lot like, you know, community intervention, you know, addressing mental health and different things like that. But it made me think back to a conversation we had earlier. It wasn't this. I think it was two seasons ago. We talked about gun control. And one of the things that we learned is that there was like almost 300, you know, laws on the books for gun control. But, you know, that's going to control law abiding citizens, not, you know, people who are going out and committing crime. So I'm not sure if, you know, addressing the crime rates is a direct, you know, analogy for gun control. But, you know, what are some of the, the best policies that you think we really need to be advocating for um, that's going to help to deter criminals, um, you know, based off? For that, wow! That, that we, we could do a whole pod on, on that. <laughs> but, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll race through it, right? So, at one level, um, we 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 want to make sure that people there are there are bad people in the world, and th- and we would all be benefit by them not being out on the streets. And but we just need to be we need to acknowledge that we're pretty terrible at figuring out who the bad person is versus the the person who was in the wrong situation or did something once. Um, for those kinds of folks, you know, we, we need, we need to focus on areas that have open air drug markets that have these, um, these, these, uh, commercial enterprises, uh, around, especially around fentanyl these days. Um, there's a lot of violence there. There's a lot of human tragedy that comes out of those places. Um, we need to focus on weapons trafficking, um, (laughs) Uh, the gun laws that are being passed in this country that for permitless carry are just uh, remarkable to me in their myopicness. I guess that's a word. Um, so, and we need to start solving crimes, right? We need to start solving crimes so that people believe that if they go to the police, that there will be a benefit and they can start trusting the police and create this virtuous cycle. We also need to start thinking long-term about investing in prevention. And prevention is, isn't, you know, isn't, isn't what we sort of think of as, oh, don't go near the rail or you'll fall over and, you know, hurt your knee. I mean, prevention is about removing risks and creating opportunities. And we think about the police as preventing crime, but the police don't prevent crime. They don't remove any risks. They don't create any opportunities. They create fear in people who have a propensity to want to commit a crime. So police are creating fear to try and deter people we have this whole set of opportunities around reducing risk and creating opportunities, reducing risk in, in the places that have been disinvested in and opportunities through school and training and, and uh, public health and addressing, you know, emotional problems and mental health problems. There's a whole world of opportunities that I think people out in the suburbs have access to that help them prevent bad outcomes for themselves that people who live in the places where crime is most concentrated do not have. Um, and if we balance that out a little bit, I think there'd be a lot less crime. And if we were a little more careful in applying our resources judiciously in the places where there is really intense crime, I think the people who live there would more than welcome that. 
Um, that requires a little nuance and a little balance. I think we are capable of doing this as a society. I think we are too. I mean, like Adrian said, we have all this data and research and this, you know, crime and trying to fix poverty is, is one of those things where we have the blueprint. We already know what works. We've seen things that work. We just refuse to implement them on a large scale. We refuse to really put the resources behind it. Um, but I'm glad you at least went through, I know it's quick, but you did list a lot of things that we can do to try to bring the crime rate down. And, and in particular, when you said we need to solve crime, that seems to be like step one that you would think police officers will be more focused on. Not saying that they aren't, but we just, particularly in our community, it feels like we just don't do a good job of it sometimes. And the community senses that. So when stuff does happen, they just don't, they don't reach out. They don't say anything. They don't talk to the police because they're like, they're not going to solve it anyway. Yeah. You know? So I think that's the attitude that has seeped into our community and we don't work with the police to try to solve some of this stuff. So it's a never ending cycle. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said there, right? So, so um, the idea is, is to create legitimacy in police officers so that the public sees them as legitimate, as legitimate. And the way you gain legitimacy is you earn it. You don't ask for it. You don't demand it. You have to be given it voluntarily. And the way you earn the legitimacy as a police officer in these neighborhoods is to solve oh. <laughs> Right? Um, and it's really interesting. There's a book, uh, Ghetto Side, by, uh, I think it's Jill Levy, who's a reporter in L.A., and she spends a couple of years in Compton investigating what happened, I'm sorry, looking at the investigations of homicides in Compton. And what she finds is they have almost no resources in LAPD to pursue and investigate these crimes. And, and you know, there's this sort of charismatic sergeant. There's this one guy who's like, you know, this is all, this is what he does with his life is to try and close these cases. And he's sort of alone. And the idea that we have, as many homicides in this country as we have, almost 800 in Chicago was the statistic you gave earlier. You know, and in the in the neighborhood that's hardest hit, there's sort of like this one detective who's the one who's actually working these cases. That is not a recipe to ever create legitimacy, right? Because you're never going to solve any crimes that way. And without legitimacy, you can't solve crimes, right? Because the police don't see you as legitimate. So they won't tell you what they witnessed because especially in a drive-by shooting and most shootings in general, the only way you close the case uh, is with an eyewitness. eyewitness. Right? There's no forensics. So, but if people don't trust you and they don't believe in you, if they don't think you're legitimate, then they won't report. So, so that's the tension that, that we have to break. And I think there's evidence that that's possible too, because what you saw throughout the last decade was that the places where violence were concentrated got, got, um, were surrounded by places that had less and less violence. So people in those neighborhoods where there was spillover from the most densely violent places, that spillover started to lessen. And that cycle of legitimacy sort of began to be existed. They were, police were closing cases. So people trusted them a little bit more, provide a little more information, which allowed them to close some more cases. And suddenly you're in a pretty virtuous cycle. Um, it never penetrated into some of these neighborhoods in in Baltimore and Memphis and Chicago and um, places in Philadelphia and places where it persists uh, decade after decade. But at least it appears to be possible. There, there's a roadmap. There's a blueprint to get there. Absolutely. We had Superintendent Sean Ferguson from New Orleans PD on the podcast last season. We talked about that trust issue uh, and that you know, community policing is supposed to help to mend that trust. But like you said, John, when there's no trust, you know, there can't be a relationship. So there can't be that sense that, you know, I help you out. You know, I feel good about coming to you um, just like, you know, if you were dating somebody. So what we're going to do, we're going to wrap this uh, segment up. And what we got to do, listeners, as always, is give our final message so that we can make sure to leave you with a call to action. Uh, John's done such a great job that I know he's going to leave us with something that's very positive. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's go ahead and wrap up our conversation with Dr. John K. Roman. He is a senior fellow of the Academic of Experimental Criminology. John, as I, as we always do with our final message, we always like to you know kind of do some sort of call to action, do something to leave listeners you know on a positive note. And you know, I feel like we've talked so much about crime and how it's a holistic approach. And you know, I was reviewing President Biden's plan and kind of how it has a, a good you know good response to crime. And even when I lived in Baltimore, Mayor Brandon Scott had a very similar you know plan where a lot of it was about gun control, hotspot, and community intervention. We've kind of talked you know about that. I just wanted to kind of make sure that we end this on something that listeners you know can kind of you know can, can run away with because. There's been a lot of stalling in Congress, a lot of stalling even on the local and state level. So as we get ready to wrap up this segment and this interview, John, what's something that, you know, citizens and our, our listeners, what's something they, they can do within their communities to kind of speed up these efforts to make our neighborhoods safer? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. So um, I would say I'm pretty optimistic that the trajectory on all this violence is is certainly flattening out. I'm expecting 2022 to be probably a little better in 2021, but we can make it get better faster. Uh, the Congress and the Biden administration have passed a huge, gigantic trillion dollar recovery act. And that money is flowing to states and counties and cities and local districts. And there is very little guidance uh, to these local levels of government about how they should spend that money. There actually isn't that much oversight. They have a lot of flexibility. And so here's the hack. Here's the hack into the political system, which is this. So you would think that in an age of Twitter and Facebook and, you know, these um, uh, ideologies that cross states and, you know, all politics is national, not local. You would think that your voice would be lessened, but your voice is actually louder than ever. And the way you get your voice heard is simply to call your local representative, your local council person, call their office and say, I understand that the city has or the county has or my township has money from the Recovery Act that is available to help my community. And the way I think it could help my community is X. And you would be amazed when, when politicians get actual human beings, actual people take the time to call their office. They listen to that because they don't get a lot of that. They get a lot of form mail. They get a lot of spam. They don't get a lot of people communicating with them directly. And you can really push them. And uh, um, uh, if you have specific things that you want done, um, it's a great moment to, to, to let your voice be heard. You know, that's, that's funny you say that. You would think in the age of social media that that wouldn't be a thing. But I guess people don't make phone calls anymore because it's, it's sort of cliche to say, call your representative, you know, <laughs> or call your local senator. I, look, um, I, always say, I always say this is the greatest time in, in the world to send things by mail, right? If you have a report, it used to be you send it by mail, nobody looks at it. Now you send it by mail. It's the only piece of mail they got that day. Of course, they're going to open sure. it up. You know? <laughs> things have flipped. <laughs> no, things but flipped. that's that's a great message. And we always try to leave our listeners with something like that to give them not homework, but things that they can do to help make their communities better. And this is one way just, you know, we always say follow the money. So make sure you follow the money in this case and tell your local representative and mayor or whoever we want this money used in this way because there's plenty of it out there. And we've know from past instances, sometimes it may not find its way to the best places. <laughs> so you better make sure that it gets to where it needs to go. But no, I think to, to wrap it up, for, at least for me, John, I appreciate, you know, your perspective on this issue. And I've definitely learned a lot about just one, the, the spike in 2020, but also just crime in general. I think a lot of people think they understand why crime happens. But I think if you listen to this conversation, you hear a different perspective and a different appreciation for the folks who are the victims of all this. You know, the ones, the young men who are in these areas who may feel as though there is no hope or opportunity and thus they have to turn to the streets and crime to get food on the table and things like that. I think it gives you a different sort of a, a window into what they're thinking and they're not born inherently criminal. 
I think that's the biggest thing is we have to get away from that too. Crime has always been used as a way to paint our community in a way that they don't deserve anything because they're just inherently criminal. Why would you invest in their communities? They don't need that. Well, that's not, it wasn't true, but obviously we have data now and people like you who are going out here saying, wait a minute, this old narrative is not true. We need to take a step back and actually look at all the data that disproves everything. So I really appreciate it. It was an awesome, awesome conversation. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, John. The only thing I was uh, going to say is I appreciate you being an ally. You know, I always tell listeners, you know, cause they can't see who the guests are, you know, John's, you know, not a person of color. And it's always nice that whenever um, you have someone who's, you know, not in the community that can kind of spell it out because I talked to so many people, especially being from Mississippi who, um, would always say that, well, as you know, I, you know, I pay my own bills. I went to school. I put my kids through college. I do this. You should be able to do it too without understanding a lot of the different factors that, you know, might make someone go towards a life of crime. So I, I just really, really appreciate that, John, because that's, um, that's one of the biggest takeaways that I look to doing, um, whenever I go into politics and policy is with really helping with opportunities and, um, and that's how we can help with crime. So, uh, listeners, we've had an awesome, awesome conversation. Remember that we were joined today by Dr. John K. Roman. He is the senior fellow, or rather, he is a senior fellow in the Economics, Justice, and Society Group at NORC at the University of Chicago, doing a lot of great work, uh, keeping us in the loop of what's going on. John, we appreciate you being on our show today. Thanks again. I appreciate it. All right. Well, listeners, we're going to do our last break. Devin, I, we got to come back and do our ending. We're going to say goodbye to Dr. Roman here, but make sure you stick with us so we can give you a preview into the future. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So as always, we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. So first up, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian again here at the Black Agenda podcast coming to you this Saturday, March 19th. And we'll be bringing you weekly roundup number nine. So if you don't know, our weekly roundups are our chance to kind of bring you more funny, humorous news, some weird news sometimes but also some real news about what's happening in the world. So you kind of get a nice mix and, you know, some insight into what's happening. So make sure you tune in this Saturday for weekly roundup number nine. That's Saturday, March 19th. We'll be back here, me and Adrian, as usual, to bring you some laughs with our quick hits, but also some real, you know, some heavy hitting news also. So make sure you tune in uh, for that. And then coming up after Saturday, coming next Tuesday, March 22nd. That'll be our next regular episode. So make sure you tune in for another fantastic conversation as we always like to do it here at the Black Agenda. So make sure you tune in next Tuesday, March 22nd for our next episode, a regular episode anyway. And then you can hear us this upcoming Saturday, March 19th for weekly roundup number nine. So a lot coming to you. We had a fantastic conversation today, Adrian. But there's more coming up. This season is really going really well. We've had some awesome guests, but also some just great conversations in general. And so you're getting all of this for free. (laughs) So, of course, we appreciate you listening for free. But, of course, we would love, love, love to have some help, some donations, as you say. Um, And AJ is going to let you know how you can help us out here at the Black Agenda. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we, we're definitely going to make this thing happen, uh, regardless, but you can make it happen a little bit easier, a little bit, you know, smoother. And whenever you think, uh, listeners about why you'd want to do that, you know, think back to the conversation that we just had with John and how we're trying to promote the idea that in order to fix crime, you have to fix the opportunity gap within our community. If you want to see that type of you know information, that type of media being put out and promoted to you know America, 
um, that's why you, you know, you, that's why you donate to us. That's why you help us build our organization. You help us build this movement that we have that's working to educate people on different policy and different issues that are going to bring some echo, some, some equality and some opportunity to our community. So that's why you're doing it. So like I always say, it's easy, easy, easy to donate. All you need to do is go to our website. It's blackagendapie.com or right now while you're listening, scroll down in the timestamps and click the donate tab. If you go to our website, you'll just click the donate tab there. Either way you do it, you're going to get to our monthly patron page. From there, you'll see different levels and you'll even see stuff that you get. So like I said, you give to us, you get stuff back and you get to know that you're making the world a better place. Uh, aside from that, um, we always like to make sure to mention our charity of the month. And our charity of the month is going to be the Common Ground Foundation. We've been talking about them, founded by an entertainer Common and his mom. They provide a holistic curriculum that encourages our youth to achieve academic excellence while inspiring them to realize their dreams and create an impact in the world. They come to them as dreamers, but emerge as dreamers and believers. So it's a really, really awesome organization. But as I always say, you know, give to us first, you know, before you give to our charity of the month, we just do that to kind of pay it forward. But we do want you to give to us first. Like I said, our website, blackagendapod.com or scroll down in the timestamps and click the donate tab. But that's all I got, Devin, just, you know, trying to make the world a better place. One donation at a time. That's right, Adrian. As we, as we always say, give to us first. <laughs> We're not being selfish, but we are being kind of selfish. Give to us first, and then you can give to the Common Ground Foundation. Um, but before we go, we want to let you know that you can keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. So make sure you follow us there to keep up with what's happening here at the podcast. But also, we have a website. It's called blackagendapod.com. You can now actually go get your news from there as well, in addition to listening to our weekly roundup show. So make sure you check out blackagendapod.com forward slash news. You'll find a lot of uh, articles written by our fantastic interns here at the Black Agenda. So make sure you check that out. Check out those articles, but also leave some feedback. These are interns and they want to get better. And the only way you can do that is by getting some reader feedback. So make sure you check it out, blackagendapod.com forward slash news. Make sure you leave some feedback there. So for me and Adrian, we appreciate you staying with us. This was another fantastic conversation. And we want to give a huge shout out to Dr. John Roman for coming on the show and speaking with us about crime and what's going on in the world around us. We hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly, we hope you learned something that you can take with you past the show. So again, we've enjoyed this conversation and we'll catch you next Saturday, March 19th for weekly roundup number nine. So until then, we'll catch you next time. 